0: This morning is this found in John chapter 20, these are events that happen immediately after the resurrection of Jesus and on up through the following week, we find a group of men who are troubled and who are in such fear that they are behind locked doors because they are so uncertain about what's going to happen to them. I was thinking about these men. I was thinking about living in fear and having a a fearful heart. Think for just a minute. Is there anyone that you can remember in your life that just struck fear in you? That just uh, you knew that that person, uh, you didn't want to cross that person. They just struck fear in your life. Thirteen years of public school education, almost 14. But 13, well, actually 13 and a few extra weeks in the summer sometimes. But, um during all those times of, of teachers and, and administrators, coaches, and all those, there was there was one teacher that I had that just had that effect on me. I respected him. I admired him. I loved being in their class. But I knew that I better never cross Mr. Needham. I knew that that, that better never happened. And so I had Mr. Needham two or three different times through high school. I did co-op. So uh, there in the 12th grade, when you co-opt, you went to school half a day, you worked half a day. And so I had Mr. Needham, and I was an officer in the vocational club. So we were going on a trip one time to Montgomery. And I noticed as we left on that trip, as we were headed down that way, I noticed I was the only boy on the trip. I was the only male on this trip. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll automatically assume Mr. Needham will be in the room with me. So, you know. That, that'll take care of that. So what I didn't know was there at the last minute, Mr. Needham's family showed up, and, and they traveled with us. His wife and his daughters went with us. So when we got there to the hotel there at Union Station in Montgomery, we checked into our rooms, and I noticed that I went into my room and set my luggage down. Mr. Needham went into the room with his family and set his luggage in there with them. And, man, my wheel started spinning. And I thought, here I am, I've got this room to myself, everybody will go to bed, and when everybody's going to bed, I'll be on the streets of Montgomery here in just a little while. So I I have all this, I'm looking out the window, I'm looking around to see, I'm scoping out the motel, I'm looking at all these things, and, and I'm thinking about, I've got all these plans going in my head. Well, in just about 15 minutes, there was a knock on my door, and Mr. Needham walked in. And he said, Michael, have a seat. And so I sat down, and Mr. Needham said, Michael, he said, my family rarely ever gets to come with me on any of these trips, but they're here with me this weekend, and, and I'm going to spend as much time with them as I can. And he said, so that means you're going to be in this room some by yourself. And he looked at me, and he said, the curfew for this motel is 10 o'clock. He said, but my curfew, curfew for you is 9. And he said this, he said, if you're not in this room at 9, he said, when we get back to school, you won't answer to Mr. Smith and you won't answer to your parents, you'll answer to me. And so Mr. Needham got up and he walked out and he told me what our itinerary was and when he walked out and he closed the door, I can promise you this, if that hotel had caught on fire (laughs) after 9 o'clock that night, the Montgomery Fire Department would have had to physically took my door down with an axe and drag me out screaming and said, no, Mr. Needham told me I can't leave. <laughs> I don't know if there's anybody that, that ever but, um, had that, and I know some of y'all are going to tell him that story, and he's going to tell you that how amazed he is that I'm in a pulpit. Um, <laughs> but these men had that kind of fear. They were afraid that somebody was going to knock down a door and drag them out and pull them out in an inquisition about this empty tomb that existed. I want to read uh, these first uh, few scriptures. We'll take this section at a time. But let's look at the part here that says Jesus appears to the disciples. Begin with me here in verse number 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now right here in the beginning in verse number 19, it's very important to understand something that Jesus is doing. The scriptures point out to us very vividly that Jesus appears to them on the first day. Jesus is establishing a new way. Jesus is establishing a break from the Jewish traditions and religion that these men are accustomed to. They are accustomed to meeting on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath being the holy day of the week for them. Jesus immediately, one of the first things he does is he begins to establish and distinguish what the disciples are going to do from the Jewish traditions. Now think about this. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. During the 40 days he spent on earth after the resurrection, he did not meet with the disciples even once on the Sabbath, on the Jewish Sabbath. He met with them every time on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, he broke bread with them. On the first day of the week, he gave them the great commission to spread the gospel. And 40 days after the resurrection, he ascended back to heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the Father as high priest of his church. Now, just pointed out to us vividly here, the doors being locked. They've locked these doors to keep the Jews out. News of the empty tomb is already spreading around Jerusalem. And these disciples are behind locked doors because they are fearful of the Jews coming and taking them out somewhere and and having an inquisition, having an investigation with them over where is the body of Jesus. In in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's account, Matthew 28 verse 11, Matthew says that the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb had already that first morning gone back into Jerusalem and told the high priest what had happened, that the body had disappeared. So it's all over, and they are becoming very fearful. Now, we know, science tells us, that at, when we are born, we are born with two only two fears. We have two fears that are instinctively in us when we are born. One is the fear of being in a high place without a stability, and the other is a fear of loud noises. Those are the only two fears that we are actually born with. Fear is taught to us. We learn fear. These men had to learn to be afraid of these things. Now I want to look right here at two ways that Jesus took their fear and two ways that Jesus still takes our fear here. First of all, he speaks peace and to their life, and into our lives. Two times here in this section of scriptures, Jesus says these words, Peace be with you. Now, he he encounters fearful, guilt-ridden disciples. And he knows that only his physical presence is going to alleviate their fears. He is the only one who can help them understand all that's taking place in, in, in their lives right now. Now think about this. There were other occasions where Jesus was speaking with his disciples where he spoke peace into their life. One example is in John 1427, when he has describing to them that he's about to depart and he's telling them of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says in verse number 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. And then in John 16, 33, a second time, he says this. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I want to point out three things in those two scriptures that I just read. First of all, Jesus is personally involved In this situation of bringing peace to our lives. He says here. He says I have told you. I leave with you. And I give you. I. He makes it personal. He says I'm the only one who can do this. And I'm in a relationship with you personally. And I'm going to make sure that I tell you. And that I leave with you. And that I give you. So he's personally involved. And then secondly he tells us the truth about this world that we live in. First of all, he says, you will, in this world, you will have what? You'll have trouble. There's some of you that have had trouble this past week. There's some of you that are looking, maybe there will be trouble this next week. Maybe you've had trouble sometime in the past, but you know you're not going to be born into this world and escape this world without having trouble. Then he says, I don't give as the world gives. When the world gives you something, the world can take whatever it gave you back away. Jesus says, when I give you something, I give it to you solidly, and nobody can take it away from you once I give it to you. And then look at the third thing here, he addresses our heart. In verse number in John 16, he says, take heart. And in John 14, 27, he says, let not your hearts... Be troubled. What does a troubled heart bring to our life? A troubled heart brings these things to our life. It brings doubt. It brings worry. And it brings fear. Jesus said, I have come to take those things away from you and to give you settled peace. Uh, Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4, some of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture in 4, 6, and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Paul here, he says it's a guarantee that when you pray, when you're anxious, if you pray and you pray with thanksgiving, you give those requests to God then there's a peace which surpasses all understanding. Have you ever had that peace that surpasses all understanding, it's the most wonderful thing to have in the world. When everyone else is falling apart, when everyone else is going through the same thing you're going through and their lives are falling apart, but you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you begin to pray about the situation in your life, you begin to pray about what's going on, and he begins to give you that peace that surpasses all understanding. And you know why he gives you that peace sometimes? It's for those people, not only for you, but it's for those people whose lives are falling apart around you so that you can be stable in Him and allow them to know that you know Jesus and that's why you have peace in your life. Maybe you've been there before. Um, My prayer, I pray with a lot of people. I pray with a lot of people and I pray with a lot of people in different situations, different places. But every prayer that I pray with somebody, I'm just about 100% of the time Pray for peace in their life. I pray for them to have peace in their mind. And I pray for them to have peace in their heart. Because here's what I know. We cannot function properly in chaos. The song we sang just a little while ago said that God brings order into chaos. So we pray for peace because peace brings God's order to our lives. Listen, we serve a God. We serve a God who one time in the middle of a huge storm, while he was taking a nap, everybody else is freaking out in Mark chapter 4. Everybody else is ready to to give up the ship and, and to think we're going down. Jesus is taking a nap. When they wake Jesus up, he comes up on the ship and what does he say? He says, peace, be still. And the winds and the waves stop. And they look at each other and say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Hey, listen, I want to tell you something this morning. He's still standing on the deck of the ship. He's still in control of the winds and the waves. He's still there and he still has the authority to stand and say, peace, be still to whatever's going on in your heart. Listen. He calms my doubts and my fears. And here's the second thing he did. He gives them the Holy Spirit. These men, think about these men. These men had deserted Jesus after his arrest. Simon Peter had denied him three times after his arrest. They let him die almost alone. And they allow the Jewish leadership to scare them. You know what Jesus does? He forgives them. He forgives them. He comes there to speak peace into their life and to let them know that he has forgiven them for abandoning him and for deserting him and for leaving him there to die alone on a cross. But you know what? His forgiveness is wonderful. If he came just to forgive them, that would be a wonderful story and we could stop right there. But he didn't stop right there. He forgave them and then he said, listen, I have something for you to do. He said, He said, even so, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. He gave them a job to do. Now, in order for them to have the power to do that job, he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. It's very similar, very similar to when God breathed life into Adam when he created the first man. It's very similar to that. When God breathed his life into Adam, Adam became a physical living being. When I was born sometime early in the morning, March 20th, 1966, um, Lackland Air Force Base, San Antonio, Texas. They have a parade that day every year there. (laughs) When I was born there, I was born into physical life. I had physical life, but you know what? The moment that I was born, what did I begin to do? I began to die. The moment that I was born physically, I began to die physically. But then there was this evening. Then there was this evening when the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and pointed me and said, Jesus is the only hope for you. Jesus is the only answer for you. Jesus Christ is what, he's waiting on you. He's beckoning you, and he sent me to point, to point him out to you. And there was that moment where I bent my my will. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And at that moment, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit came into my life. And I wasn't just alive physically, but I was born for the first time. And really what matters, I was born spiritually. I was born again through the Holy Spirit. He immediately came into my life. Now look at this. The whole Trinity is at work here. Jesus as the one sent by the Father. The sent one, Jesus, has now become the sender. And he's commissioning his followers to serve as his messengers and representatives. As the Father sent Jesus, now Jesus sends his disciples and he equips them with the Holy Spirit. Now this is a foretaste of what's going to happen about 50 days later on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and falls on everyone there. The Spirit automatically comes to live in us the moment that we have salvation. Now, in verse number 23, we could get wrapped up in this all day long. But Jesus said these words. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here's what he means. Christians or churches don't have the authority on our own to forgive or not forgive other people. But here's what it's saying. As the church, as you and I proclaim the gospel message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are proclaiming that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven and that those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven. It simply reflects what God in heaven has already done. There's two classes of people in this world. There's only two classes of people in this world when you break it down and get right down to it. There are those whose sins have been forgiven and there are those whose sins have not been forgiven. And it is our obligation as a church to distinguish between the two. Now you can go a lot of places today to a church and you can be rubbed on the head and patted on the back and told how wonderful you are and and told how good you are and, and never know Jesus and, and just comfortably slide right off into hell. I'm not one of those preachers. I'm not one of those preachers. I'm going to tell you either you are forgiven or either you're not. If you are forgiven, you have eternal life with Jesus Christ. You're going to heaven. If you're not forgiven, you're going to be separated in a place called hell. Jesus put into the hands of Peter and of every believers, the keys of the kingdom which we should use to open the door for those who wish to enter. Now, this promise applies to every believer who will tell the story of Christ's love for others. Now look at there's there's this man who is in this, who's in this story. And we 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 put shadows on this poor fellow. His name is Thomas. What do we normally what 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 verb do we put in front or is it an adjective? I'm sorry. Adjective. Thank you, Bree. We put the adjective doubting. We call him doubting Thomas. Some of you school teachers are like, What? <laughs> Read verses 24 through 29, Rumi. Really. He says, Now Thomas, some of you, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side to not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you have that friend who's that show me friend or that prove it to me friend? Any of you have that person, that, that friend in your life? I have one. If my friend told me, if my friend told me that he was catching 10 pound bass on purple caterpillars, he would expect me to believe it and not question it, and he'd tell me that he was the only one who could do it. Now, if I told my friend, this same friend, if I told him, hey, I caught a 10-pound bass on a purple caterpillar, no, you didn't, you lying. He'd make me, he, he would want me to get in a boat and go with him and show him and prove to him that I could catch a And I don't even know if you can catch a fish on a purple caterpillar. But he would want me to go and prove to him that I could. Everything with him is an argument over whether he's right or whether I'm right. And, and, and I hadn't won one yet. You ever known that person who was just that guy? That guy who always was the doubter or Thomas is that guy. I always told my kids when they were younger and they would go, I would say, Don't be that kid. Don't be that kid. Didn't work most of the time. But Thomas is that guy. Now, for whatever reason, Thomas, the twin, was not at the first meeting when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. Now, everybody grieves in different ways. Thomas may have been alone. I grieve by myself. Thomas may have gone somewhere. And to grieve by himself. He may have just separated himself. We don't know. But the other disciples could not convince him they had seen Jesus. Maybe Thomas thinks the disciples have seen a ghost. Thomas wants physical evidence. He wants to put his hands in the nail holes and side wound. He says the only way that I'm going to believe is if I see physical evidence. Now let me ask you. Is Thomas really any different than the other ten? Really, he's not. The other ten had gone and and were hiding behind a locked door. They they had locked themselves away. They had doubts and they had fears. They They had heard the account of the empty tomb, but they're still hiding behind a locked door. But see, they got to see Jesus in the flesh, which is all Thomas really wanted to do. Thomas had a great desire to believe. He wanted to believe. There's a great desire to believe in the whole world today. There's a great desire in our world to have something to believe in and to have something to hold on to and something that is truth that that, that is there. Today, you and I are the proof of the resurrection. Our lives are the proof of the resurrection. Now, Jesus comes here this following Sunday It's one week after Easter. This festival of unleavened bread is over and the disciples will soon be going back to Galilee. Now, Jesus appears again and again. He says, peace be with you. And in verse number 27, he tells tells Thomas this, I know what your doubt is. I know. He reveals his knowledge of the doubt in the mind of Thomas and he mentions the very test That Thomas had named. And he says to him. See the nail scars. See the imprint. See the wound in my side. Jesus wanted Thomas to believe. Instead of doubting the resurrection. Theologian named Lawrence Richards wrote this about Thomas. He said what a blessing Thomas is to Christians everywhere. He reminds us that the skeptic is not rejected by God. That doubts and uncertainty do not lose us a place in God's kingdom. He reminds us too that Jesus willingly comes to us to show us his hands inside that we might believe. Jesus met Thomas where he was. And in verse number 28, Thomas says these wonderful words, My Lord and my God. It's not merely an exclamation of astonishment at seeing Jesus. He's simply using the proper address that the risen Christ deserved. Thomas immediately knew that the risen Christ was Lord and he was God. He identified Jesus as being both. He just properly addressed him. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the exact words that Thomas exclaimed here. And in verse number 29, Jesus addresses those of us here this morning who have declared Jesus as my Lord and my God. He says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, in one month, no one else would ever be able to see Jesus face to face before believing in him again. Faith, Listen to me. Faith is not dependent on sight. In fact, those who believe without seeing, that's us. Those who believe without seeing, Jesus said we are blessed because we have believed without seeing. But you know what I saw? I saw evidence of Jesus everywhere I looked. I saw evidence of Jesus in other people's changed lives. I saw evidence of Jesus all around me. Now Jesus didn't scold Thomas for doubting. He didn't scold him for doubting that he was alive and for wanting tangible proof of his resurrection. He met Thomas where he was spiritually and he gave Thomas the evidence Thomas wanted to see. Doubts from a searching heart are not sinful. Doubts from a hard heart are sinful. But here's what we can do. We can take those doubts to Jesus Christ in prayer and through Scripture and we can get answers for every doubt that we ever have. Now, look at these last two verses here with me. Verses 30 and 31. And let's see, John had a purpose for writing this book that he wrote. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How many of you you have ever written a term paper or an essay? You ever written a term paper or an essay? Sometimes y'all listen to my grammar and you think, I bet he's never written one. I've written hundreds of them. I can promise you. Now what do we do in that first paragraph? Teachers, in that first paragraph, what do we establish in that, uh, there early on in, in, our, in our essay or our term paper? We, we determine a thesis. We determine the theme for what we're writing about. I can write you a thesis in two minutes' time. I can sit with my children for two hours and can't get them to spell thesis. They'll give me later. Now, we're taught to start a paper with the theme statement or the purpose statement. Now, John has a clear statement. And although he stated it near the end of the book, normally in most books of the Bible, in Acts chapter 1, the thesis is found in verse number 8, the great commandment. In John's other writing, in 1 John chapter 1, He declares a thesis there in the first four verses. But in the gospel of John here, he waits until the very end here to explain why he wrote this book. These verses are the key verses for everything that he's already written. They explain why John wrote this gospel. He wrote it simply this reason. So that people who read it will believe that Jesus is God's son and gain eternal life. What what have we been taught in Southern Baptist life? What, what have we always been taught? If we lead somebody to Christ, where do, we, where do we immediately send them? What's the first thing we tell them to read? The book of John. We tell them to read the gospel of John. Because John the beloved had such an intimate relationship with Jesus. He declares Jesus in a way that the others don't. But he also gives so much evidence and proof as to who Jesus is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, he says here, I didn't record every miracle Jesus did. Instead, I selected the ones that clearly point to Jesus being the Son of God. John told us all we need to know about Jesus So we can have eternal life. Now John didn't write philosophy. There's not a lot of theory here in what John wrote. John wrote as an eyewitness. And an eyewitness account. To everything that he witnessed. God in the flesh do on this earth. Now. Why? Why did God establish. Why did God establish, just a a few days later, about a month later, why did God establish a church there in Jerusalem? Why did he establish that church there? He established it for the purpose of carrying his gospel to every nation. He tells them there, before he ascends, Jesus tells them that they're going to take the gospel all throughout Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea and then to the ends of the earth. About 148 years ago, God established a Baptist mission here in what was known as Cross Plains at the time. Why did God establish that Baptist mission here in Piedmont? He established that mission here for the same reason that He established that church there in Jerusalem. For us to share the gospel here, but to also be sure that we're carrying the gospel to all nations. And here's here's how we. Here's a practical way. Our, our personal story. Of relationship. My story. I told my story last Sunday. From this pulpit. Each one of you. Has a personal story. Of how Jesus. Has changed your life. And how you have eternal life. And that the only way you could have that eternal life. Was through. The death, burial, and resurrection of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Now, this evening, this afternoon, there's a group of us here going to meet, and we're going to plan a celebration, a 150th anniversary celebration for this church in January of 2020. We're, we're looking that far ahead to plan a celebration. And, and that's wonderful, because I can tell you, Knowing what I know, that most Baptist churches have a lifespan of about 70 years and then they die. In our county, there are 20 to 25 Southern Baptist churches that have about five years of existence left if they don't completely change what they're doing. Now, God established this work here in Piedmont, Alabama. He established a church to to be here but more importantly than that he breathes his holy spirit into you individually and personally so that you individually and personally you don't go out and tell people about the first Baptist. I hope that you brag on our church when you talk about it, but you're not trying to win people to the First Baptist Church of Piedmont. You're trying to win people to this very Jesus, the Son of God, who John gave such an accurate description of. He gave such a great historical account of, and you can prove his existence just through the writings of John, and then you add your personal account to what this Jesus did in your life and how. You have eternal life because of him. And guess what? You let the Holy Spirit do the rest. You let the Holy Spirit do the rest. You let him convict that heart and point that person to Jesus. And you explain to them scripturally how they can know him for eternity. Does that sound real hard? It's not. It's not. Go back. We tell new believers, we say this, go and read the book of John. Brother Ed Kugler, who was our interim pastor one time, he, one of his family members gave his life to Christ, and he said, Brother, he said, Ed, I've read it, and it, what do you want me to do now? And Ed said, Read it 20 more times, and then come back and talk to me. I'm not going to tell you that. But I, I want to encourage you this week if you've been a Christian for a year, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, if you've been a Christian for 50 years, go back this week and read the Gospel of John. Probably take you about an hour to sit and read through it. And then. Pair your personal account up with the historical account that John gave and tell me, I'm going to tell you this, if you do that, if you do that, there's no way, there's no way that you're not going to be compelled to tell other people about Jesus. I promise you that. If you do it and you're not compelled, you come back and see me and I'll share the gospel of John with you and I'll tell you my account and I'll lead you to Jesus, all right? Deal? But this morning... John wrote this account so that those who are here, those 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 in this life who don't yet know Jesus can know him and know the forgiveness of sins. It's the week after Easter. I, I want to tell you this. Today is the most depressing day for most preachers in the whole calendar year. You know what? It doesn't bother me a bit. Jesus is still risen. Jesus is still alive. And this morning, whether there's... Uh, Whether there's 250 or whether there's 470 that there were here last week, there's somebody here that needs to know Jesus. And I'm going to preach that same gospel. I'm going to preach it the same way. And somebody here this morning, God is already speaking to your heart. And I want you to listen to what he's saying to you because he is speaking to you and pointing you to Jesus Christ. And he's telling you that you can have peace in your life and the only way to have it is through Jesus. And Jesus will walk. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28 as he was leaving, before he left, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I promise you that this morning. Not every day of my life has been easy. But I can tell you this. Every day of my life has been walked with knowing that Jesus is is walking with me. And that's what sustains us through this life. This morning as we stand, I want you, if you're here this morning, as we begin this invitation time, this worship time, this time of reflection, I want you to immediately respond, and I want you to come here, and I want to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ throughout all eternity as your Lord and your God. Would you bow your heads as you stand? Father, this morning, I pray for those who are here who need to know Christ as their Savior. I pray for those who are here this morning who need to know that their sins are forgiven. I thank you for your account through the Gospels of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm grateful to know this morning that I have eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. And I pray this morning that if there are those here, if there's anyone here this morning, who needs forgiveness of sin, I pray they'll come immediately and find that. And Father, I pray this morning for those who are struggling with baptism or church membership, whatever they need to do during this time, someone will be here to receive them and to give them further instruction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.